You're listening to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. Barely a day goes by now when you don't wake up to news of some diplomatic affront. The U.S. and China, it seems, are caught in a downwardly spiraling political maelstrom, and there's no end in sight. While the short-term implications appear rather petty, you close my consulate, I'll close yours, the longer-term issues could prove severe. Not just for the two countries, but for the world at large. It speaks to the essential nature of the two superpowers. They set the tone for what comes next economically. Diplomatic squabbling isn't helping, particularly in a time of pandemic when greater interreliance, not less, could make all the difference. Which country comes out on top may have less to do with politics and more to do with which nation gets its economy back on track first. Through this lens, China would appear to have the upper hand. Its economy is rebounding, and as my guest this week explains, it has much to do with China's relative success in bringing COVID to heel. Clay Chandler is executive editor for Fortune here in Asia. Based out of Hong Kong, he's a long-serving member of the region's journalistic community, holding stints with The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and Time, Inc., At Fortune, he's created a niche in delivering nuanced tales, offering up an Asia perspective to challenge more populist U.S.-centric views. Here's my conversation with Clay. Let's talk about Hong Kong. Um, The Hong Kong's political and social unrest is front and center in the news. China's newly imposed security law has the people of Hong Kong up in arms. Beyond that, what's the general business sentiment? Well, uh, the sentiment is, is mixed. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of anxiety. Um, we've had uh, several surveys, including most notably uh, recently the uh, American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong did a survey trying to uh, take the pulse of the U.S. business community, their members here, um, found that um, a very large percentage of people are, uh, are concerned or extremely concerned about this law. Uh, that uh, as many as uh, almost a third are actually considering moving either uh, people or, or uh, capital uh, out of the city uh, to, to other locations. Um, and that uh, most of the members said that they thought that the, the new law would adversely affect their business uh, in the region. So those are uh, rather distressing uh, early signs. But I think the truth is that uh, right now, uh, most people are adopting a wait and see attitude. This law is very sweeping. Um, the terms uh, are, are quite ambiguous. And so the question is how they will actually be implemented. And so people are, are watching to, to see um, how this thing is actually on a kind of practical day-to-day basis uh, going to be uh, executed, whether it'll be something that is broadly applied to large numbers of people, including, uh, including foreign business people, or whether Beijing will stick to its uh, promise that this is something that's really only targeting a small number of radicals uh, who, who genuinely jeopardize uh, national security. Is there a line being drawn between those who have regional or broader Asia-Pacific business interests versus those that are China-focused? In other words, um, if Hong Kong is going to lose its status as a regional hub, uh, will more will there be greater interest in organizations walking to Hong Kong or remaining in Hong Kong who will focus on the China market? I think it's uh, it's difficult to say uh, at this stage. Uh, I, I can just tell you anecdotally that among the expatriate business community here, I, I hear a lot of discussion uh, among people about how to move and relocate assets and you know what can we get out. Um, that hasn't yet been reflected in the, in the 
data in terms of, of capital moving out of Hong Kong. We haven't seen that. We haven't really seen many dramatic announcements of, of firms scaling back with the exception of, uh, of the tech industry, which has sort of signaled that it's ready to, to take flight because of uh, their concerns about data privacy under the, under the new law. Uh, but, uh, you know, the signals are, are quite mixed. I mean, in the finance industry, um, there is actually a, a new mood of bullishness. Uh, Beijing is working very hard to channel uh, deals uh, to, to Hong Kong, to the Hong Kong exchange. Uh, we've seen a flurry of major IPO uh, announcements uh, or, or actual uh, listings uh, over the last uh, a few weeks, and that's encouraged a lot of people. Um, you know, when we launched um, the, uh, our interview series uh, for Eastworld, this new uh, Asia-focused uh, business newsletter that we're, we're doing at Fortune, our, our first kickoff interview was with Charles Lee, the head of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And he was quite candid. It said something that, at the time, I didn't quite grasp how uh, insightful it was, but he said, you know, we may have to get used to a world in Hong Kong where we have slightly uh, fewer uh, uh, civil liberties than we're accustomed to or than we might like, but that we all are a lot better off financially uh, and we, we make a lot more money, at least in the finance sector. And uh, that's certainly, uh, I think, proving to be the case uh, so far. So I think the, the, the divide may not necessarily be between whether you're an Asia regional business or a China-focused business. It, it may be what kind of sector you're in. Uh, if, you're a, um, if you're in finance, uh, I think that there is a lot of incentive to, to stick around and, and look for opportunities. You know, that comment strikes me uh, as, as, as interesting in this time of COVID where some of the dr draconian measures being uh, uh, you know, uh, demonstrated in places like the Philippines or India um, where lockdowns are challenging people's personal liberties. And the comment is very similar, which is it's something we need to get used to. Of course, there's an underbelly to that, and that, that raises some concerns. Will governments exploit that opportunity, or is it truly in the interest of public safety? Uh, but but I, you get the feeling that, that uh, money versus liberty is the, is the question of the day. Yeah, it's a, it's a very complicated uh, trade-off for people to make, and... and uh you know, it has fairly significant implications for, for just individual lives and how, how people plan their future. Mm. You mentioned your new newsletter, Eastworld, and for listeners who haven't uh, seen it, uh, I, I highly recommend you subscribe to it. Um, but it also, when I saw the title, uh, it couldn't, I couldn't help but think of the dystopian TV series Westworld. Was there a subliminal intent in the naming, or is it just uh, uh, trying to approximate uh, the time and place where you're operating? No, it was deliberate, to be honest. I mean, in that um, there's all this talk of, of um, decoupling. You know, we've, see, we've been through this era where, um, where the West and the East have become more and more integrated. They have supply chains that are all tangled up. They do business with each other. They depend on each other. Our students go back and forth uh, to, to, you know, universities in the different countries. And suddenly there seems to be this attempt to pry those worlds apart again. And mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, you know, where we're coming from with this newsletter is that uh, what's going on in this part of the world is, is still relevant. It's still very significant. Uh, and that um, uh, you have to pay attention to it uh, because it, 
it, it really is, is driving so many of the forces that, that shape the global economy uh, that, you know, the, the idea that we can just hit the brakes and, and go back to uh, the 50s uh, is, is, is nuts. Now let's talk about China. Um, in, in a June article, you noted how after the 2008 global financial crisis, China went on a global buying spree. Um, there are some concerns that post-COVID, they'll set out to do the same. Uh, you wrote then that the global economy's sudden collapse this year has inspired dire warnings that China's big spenders will return, exploiting the pandemic to snap up financially distressed companies in the U.S. and Europe on the cheap. Is this coming to fruition? Any evidence of this? It doesn't seem to be at all. There's no reflection of that uh, in, the, in the data. The group that follows this uh, very carefully, obviously, is, uh, is the Rhodium Group, uh, and they're uh, most recent reports on what's happening suggest that, in fact, uh, outbound uh, investments from China are down in value terms almost 90 percent, uh, while uh, inbound uh, investment into the Chinese economy from overseas is actually proving to be remarkably resilient, especially given uh, you know, what's happening with, uh, with the coronavirus shock. And that's a side of the story we don't typically hear about. Uh, there, there's all this discussion on U.S.-China tensions, the Trump administration's attempt to block uh, Chinese investments in the U.S., uh, the challenges that TikTok and Huawei are having internationally. Uh, but when the conversation turns to foreign direct investment in China, uh, there, there's largely silence. Why, why is that? And what can you tell us about that? Well, this is... Uh you know, for us, this is a classic East World story where it's, where it's actually a nuanced picture and in the current political climate in the United States and much of the rest of the Western uh, uh, financial press, it doesn't really lend itself to a nuanced discussion about what's actually uh, uh, going on. Um, so, you know, to begin with, I think we have to concede that there has been this very significant shift in the opinion of the, the Western and particularly the U.S. business community about um, how complicated it is to do uh, business in China. And so if you, if you read um, Superpower Showdown, this wonderful uh, uh, new book by uh, uh, my old colleague Bob Davis, uh, at the, uh, who's uh, at the Wall Street Journal, is one of the co-authors, um, it does a really great job of documenting how businesses went from being just euphoric uh, uh, and looking to the Chinese market for, for growth and then sort of doubling down after the financial crisis to then becoming very um, uh, cynical and, and embittered and feeling like they weren't treat, being treated fairly. So that's a significant new shift. But having said that, uh, as we look around at the Fortune 500 companies that have made big bets uh, on China, I don't see very many of them uh, changing their investment uh, or, or operational strategies. If anything, they're actually uh, accelerating their plans to expand in China. And you can talk about, for example, companies like uh, Walmart, which you know, uh, on April 8th, the day that the lockdown ended in Wuhan, held a press conference there saying that they were, they were significantly expanding their operations in the Hebei uh, area. Companies like Ford are heavily dependent on being able to succeed in the Chinese market, they get a lot of their parts from the, the Wuhan and Hubei uh, area. China is the biggest uh, auto market in the world uh, right now. Uh, you know, no major auto manufacturer can afford to ignore that. You look at Starbucks, they've got a plan to uh, expand to 
6,000 stores uh, in, uh, in China by uh, 2023, I think it is. Uh, they're not backing off that at all. And uh, Tesla, which is really staking a big chunk of its future growth prospects on the success of its new gigafactory uh, in Shanghai. And Elon Musk uh, is, is very bullish on, on prospects for, uh, for success in China and getting a big chunk of his revenue. Apple still very dependent uh, on China as well. You can go right around all these uh, companies that, that are at the top of our global uh, 500 rankings still have a big stake in what's going on in China. Yes, you just can't argue against the fact that uh, the continued rise of China's middle class is still the world's best growth story, isn't it? Yes, that's absolutely right. And ironically, uh, it's uh, an even more appealing growth story in the wake of the, uh, the pandemic. And you, know, you, can, you can argue that, that it's China's fault that the pandemic started in the first place, and you can certainly criticize China for being slow to uh, move to counter uh, and contain the virus and to disclose how serious it was uh, to the rest of the world. But after that initial kind of one or two week delay, uh, China really swung into action uh, very quickly, mobilized a lot of resources, and I think there's no denying they shut, uh, you know, they were able to flatten the, the curve far more quickly than we've been able to do uh, in the West and especially in the United States. And, you know, as you just kind of look day after day after day at these daily new case counts in the United States, it just, you know, as an American sitting here in Hong Kong where, you know, we uh, pay great detail to every single new case every single day, to see the case counts uh, tick up to 50, 60, 70,000 a day in the United States and people calling for returning to school, uh, uh, you know, this ridiculous fuss about whether or not to wear masks. It just, it, it kind of blows my mind. Yeah, I'd say what you will, just or unjust, uh, the fact is that China's market does appear to be on the comeback and doing well and stabilizing to some degree. There's still some infrastructural and some, some, uh, some, some issues that, that need to be resolved over time, but all things being equal, it's not a bad story. It, it, when, when you, when you re reference the multinationals, the large organizations that are still investing, have in, in the absence of government-to-government -government discussions or, or reparations, has there been an ability for these organizations to somehow level the playing field, improve the terms, uh, impress upon China the importance of changing the way that some of their business uh, practices were negatively impacting foreign investors? I really don't know that that message is, is getting through. And, and to be honest, the fact that uh, China is the best uh, growth story in the global economy right now, uh, for better or worse, uh, actually makes them less, it, it makes it less necessary perhaps for Beijing to, to listen to those concerns. I mean, there has been uh, some effort to make a show of, of being more attentive. Uh, and it, it is definitely true that in certain sectors, uh, China has really um, pulled out all the stops to court uh, foreign investment in recent months. Uh, they have loosened uh, investment or restrictions in the financial sector, for example. Uh, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs have all uh, recently been able to get majority stakes in their, in their equities uh, operations uh, in mainland China. That's new. Uh, uh, in the auto sector, uh, there's been an effort to try to make it easier for global auto companies to make uh, uh, acquisitions uh, in, in China and some effort to kind of clear the, the red tape on some of those. And I think that's part of the reason that you're seeing the resilience in the, in the inbound 
China in investment numbers. I also think that during the the uh, the COVID outbreak in uh, China, uh, you know, many of the provincial and local governments went to great lengths to uh, demonstrate that they really cared about uh, maintaining good relations with the with the companies that were uh, uh, in their areas. I mean, for example, at that Gigafactory uh, for Tesla in, in Shanghai, the local government there uh, got 10,000 masks so that uh, that uh, Elon's uh, workers could get back to work quickly. They found housing for them. They helped them with transportation. Uh, uh, you know, this was a huge contrast to uh, uh, the Fremont plant where, where Elon was practically at war. Uh, with local governments uh, there, uh, trying to get the uh, trying to get the plan restarted. Um, so, um, mm -hmm. you know, there have been these efforts to cultivate and court the uh, uh, the f foreign companies, but I don't think that there has been an effort to uh, back off from China's uh, uh, stated goals of reducing their dependence on uh, American companies for technology uh, and and. Uh, you know, for uh, components. So, you know, Xi Jinping recently summoned a bunch of business people to um, uh, to Beijing to have a, a meeting with them and to reassure them that China was absolutely uh, committed to uh, open markets, open investment, and uh, and and growth. But the message was very mixed because um, that meeting was also heavily attended by Chinese businesses, and he made a direct appeal to those businesses that they need to be patriotic and loyal, which is uh, a little disconcerting if you are a non-Chinese business person. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a bit of deja vu here. It, it reminds me when Trump came to power and he stepped away from the, uh, the TPP, the trade agreement, uh, and, and thinking he was protecting U.S. interests. In fact, uh, the, the, the vacuum was filled by all kinds of other country uh, corporations from New Zealand, Australia, Europe, whatnot, Japanese rushing in to fill that uh, that space it, it it feels a little bit similar here that that you know whereas all of the rattling saber rattling that's going on with u.s politics we may be undermining u.s corporate ability to compete in the china market giving some advantage albeit indirectly to uh to other national corporations or, or, or corporations for other countries what, how do you feel about that i think that the trump administration's decision to impose unilateral uh, uh, economic sanctions uh, in its uh, in its face off with China uh, has to be seen in hindsight as as one of the administration's great uh, strategic uh, blunders in in economic policy. I mean, he picked a fight with every single U.S. ally all at the same time, and then tried to go it alone uh, against China. And uh, I think it really uh, undermined uh, the leverage that the U.S. might otherwise uh, have have had in its negotiations to get China to, to change its, uh, its uh, business practices. I mean, the, the, the book that I mentioned by uh, Bob Davis and Ling Ling Wei, the Wall Street Journal, is, is very uh, compelling on this, uh, on this point. There's another terrific book uh, written by uh, my old uh, Washington Post uh, colleague, uh, uh, Paul Bluestein, which also uh, ex explains this in, in some detail. But the world could have been a very different place had Trump not decided to pick fights with every single trade partner all at once. Mm. 
Yeah, and, and the U.S. has made it very difficult for Chinese companies to stay, remain, thrive in the U.S. Do, do you sense that any of the increase or the, the gradual re return of foreign direct investment is due to round-tripping? In other words, uh, we're, if we were to look at the numbers showing Chinese divestment from overseas interests, would this help paint a picture of what's happening with investment flows into China? You know, I haven't looked at those numbers lately, so I, I don't really know. I do think that we, uh, what we, what what Trump has promised uh, is this notion of uh, repatriation of American uh, investment from China back to uh, back to the United States. You know, th uh, there's this talk of uh, instead of uh, offshoring, you know, reshoring uh, manufacturing, uh, coming back to the American heartland. That has not happened, and is very unlikely to happen. Uh, what you've seen is you've seen an increase in investment in, in other economies, um, you know, Mexico, for example, uh, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, depending on the industry, you know, Bangladesh has been a big uh, beneficiary of, of, of new investment. But I have not seen any data to suggest that there has been, uh, other than possibly, uh, you know, in the very high-end technology kind of security uh, uh, sectors, a return to the United States. Mm -hmm. Clay, what, what are your thoughts about the upcoming elections and the degree to which uh, China will play uh, as a theme in, in, in those discussions? Uh, do you think that uh, it, it's something which is going to have an effect or an impact on the way the Chinese government uh, makes its near-term decisions or medium-term medium decisions? Well, we do know that um, demonizing uh, China is is going to be a central theme of the the Trump uh, playbook, and we know also that uh, the uh, there is a fair amount of bipartisan consensus uh, when it comes to frustration uh, with China, and so uh, the Biden campaign, the Democrats, the last thing that they want to do is be perceived as uh, as softer on China than the Republicans uh, and Trump. So there will be a race there to be. Uh, as hawkish as, as possible. What I find harder to assess, uh, and this is maybe a, a bit of a contrarian view, is how important China really is to American uh, voters right now. I think maybe in January, we might have said that China was a, a, a highly salient uh, issue, um, you know, even for investors, uh, whether the trade deal was, uh, was on or off, was driving markets up and down. But in the wake of everything that's happened over the last six months, the focus has really shifted to uh, people's health and safety, uh, hugely divisive uh, race issues, uh, and uh, you know the cratering economy. And in the light of all that's happened over the last, you know over that period of time, uh, China it seems to me may not seem as important uh, as it once did. Maybe not directly, but indirectly, in terms of, of locking China out or repatriating manufacturing to the U.S. To the degree to which you you see a an increase in the in the, in the average price of the consumer goods, should that happen, uh, certainly that's going to create some uh, some some playback uh, so, uh, it, with with the consumers in the U.S., wouldn't it? But I guess it'll take time to move through the system before it actually has an impact, and people may not even attribute it uh, to to what's going on with China and the tensions between U.S. and China. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that's a that's a complex uh, relationship to explain to to voters, um, and uh, you know, um, 
the most obvious way to explain what's going on right now is that the U.S. failed to get to grips with this virus. And the result is that businesses cannot reopen and people can't go to work and that consumers don't have uh, any confidence uh, uh, about their job prospects, about even going to the grocery store. And that puts a huge damper uh, on the economy. So um, it would seem to me that, that at least, you know, for the Biden camp, the argument is it was the failure to come to grips with, uh, with the virus, the lack of leadership there that has led to this protracted downturn of the U.S. economy, an economy that, that may not be able to recover until well into next summer. You know, China just uh, posted its most recent uh, uh, quarterly growth number, 3.2%, and uh, is going gonna, is gonna to actually be able to bounce back uh, relatively well by the end of the year, most economists say. The U.S. is going to be uh, still uh, struggling until we have a we have a vaccine, until we've got uh, that vaccine fairly widely distributed, and everyone feel it's it's safe to go back to business. It's just an extraordinary and unexpected turn of events, isn't it? It's it's just not the way that perhaps any of us would have seen this playing out. Uh, you know, six to twelve months back, when when all of this started to to emerge. Um, Clay, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, Eastworld, for those who haven't seen the newsletter, uh, uh, please go and subscribe. Uh, highly recommend it. And, and Clay, keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Steve, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Clay Chandler, executive editor of Fortune Asia. For anyone mainlining U.S. news, you'd think that the Trump administration had China over a barrel, blocking acquisitions of U.S. companies, levying tariffs against Chinese-made goods, and generally talking tough in defense of U.S. interests. Take a closer look and you can see that it's China's economy, not the U.S., that's regained its stride. A V-shaped recovery is in the making. In Q2, the country recorded 3.2% GDP growth, a significant rebound from a 6.8% contraction in the first quarter. While staving off a second wave of COVID, the country has benefited from increased government spending, tax breaks, and cuts in lending rates. Infrastructure spending both at home and abroad has kept pace, and employment figures are holding steady. These are early days, but you might say China's recovery plan is paying dividends. Unfortunately, the same can't be said of the U.S., where Q2 GDP growth fell a historic 32.9%. In the meantime, COVID cases keep rising, politicians keep squabbling, and everyone suffers. Whether we like it or not, China is still the world's biggest economic growth story. But there's more at stake. We're talking about bragging rights. China's ability to manage through a down cycle better than the U.S. won't go unnoticed. Burgeoning liberal democracies around the world may come to question the pros and cons of a freewheeling U.S. system versus a more centrist Chinese model. It's a tale of two systems at a pivotal historical juncture. The longer it takes for the U.S. to get its act together, the brighter the light shines on China. Watching investors is usually a good indicator. Case in point, foreign direct investment into China is on the rise and shows no sign of slowing. As Clay points out, Fortune 500 firms aren't going to sit on the sidelines and miss the opportunity to build business in China, even if it means going it alone in the absence of market entry reforms. From a pure commercial perspective, not engaging is to miss the opportunity to grow revenues and market share. 
And at a time when the rest of the world remains flat, China, its growing middle class, and its planned economy are all reasons to invest. Short of military confrontation, which is a real possibility, there's little the U.S. can do to short-circuit China's apparent rise. Now it's up to policymakers on both sides of the Pacific to come to terms with this fact, get back to the negotiating table, and carve out a plan that the world can live with. Granted, that's easier said than done. That brings us to the end of this episode. We thank you for listening. How's your China strategy panning out? Are you and your organization taking a wait-and-see approach, or are the risks of increased China investment worth it? Let us know. Leave us your thoughts on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. If you're not already a loyal Inside Asia listener, please subscribe today. Search for Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. It's entirely free, and there are over 140 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.